If you have a Bible, uh, please open it up to Acts uh, chapter 15. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. But some men came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, in my judgment, this is, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, 
having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. And when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they'd read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. May God be pleased to add his blessing to this word. You may take your seats. Well, conflict is at the heart of every good story, whether it's a children's story, one of Grimm's fairy tales, or it's a novel or a film. There's hardly a good story without some great conflict. And this is true, the story of the Bible, the great conflict that God sets into place in the Garden of Eden, and it is true in the story of the early church. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light, clashes with the kingdom of darkness. Is the kingdom of life uh, uh, frees uh, people from darkness, reclaims their lives, and takes turf from the dark one. And we've seen this conflict many times in the book of Acts. As the apostles proclaim Jesus, the Jewish leadership, those same uh, people who condemned and crucified uh, Jesus, oppose them. Uh, arresting them, beating them, threatening them, and time uh, leading to the martyrdom of even Stephen. And the Roman authorities, seeing that opposition uh, to the apostles pleased the Jews, had both uh, James and Peter arrested. Uh, James was put to death, and Peter was about to be, except God sent an angel and rescued him from prison. But the conflict takes an entirely different uh, turn in Acts 14, which is where we left off a couple of months ago, as the gospel challenged not only the worship of idols, but the entire pagan way of life. And as a result, Paul was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. 
And Luke's history is largely concerned with the progress of the gospel in keeping uh, with the words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And as the church expanded and moved out in these concentric circles, there was additional conflict. Conflict that happened in the church. And right here in the center of the book of Acts, Luke describes these two conflicts, these two disagreements. One of them is a disagreement over Mark. It's a personnel issue. Should Mark be included uh, in the second missionary journey? And the other is a disagreement over the Gentiles. And this is the main concern of the chapter. Uh, It is not only a conflict about theology, but it's one with great pastoral implications, as we'll see. These conflicts broke the joy. The conflict that broke out in Antioch and then in Jerusalem broke the joy in the church as the report of many Gentiles turning to Christ was heard. And the conflict between Paul and Barnabas broke the joy of their partnership in ministry in the gospel, which reached back over 15 years. That's the painful reality of conflict. It breaks the joy in our lives as relationships are ruptured, as the peace and harmony that we took for granted gives way to hard words, to tension, even anger, and often bitterness. And if you struggle when you experience conflict, or you know you don't do conflict well, well, there are lessons in this passage for you that you'll glean if you'll stay with me and look below the surface and see God's purposes are at work, and how it is that God restores joy. I want to begin with the disagreement over John Mark. Paul says uh, to Barnabas, uh, let's uh, go back and visit the churches we planted. Let's strengthen them. And as they discuss the details about the journey, Barnabas wants to take his cousin, uh, John Mark, along. And Paul strongly objects reminding him that Mark deserted them in the last journey. Now, we don't know why Mark walked away, but we can imagine the very sharp disagreement was painful for Barnabas and very difficult for Paul. We don't need a lot of imagination just to put together the pieces that we have of their stories as we've encountered them in the book of Acts. Paul owed more to Barnabas than to any other person in the church. After all, Barnabas, well, he took a risk on Paul and introduced this persecutor of the church who was viewed by the church as a threat, someone uh, to avoid and shun. And Barnabas not only championed him, but later on when Barnabas is sent by the church uh, to uh, check out what has happened in Antioch, the first large cosmopolitan city in uh, in the Roman world, uh, a Hellenistic city to come under the power of the gospel. Barnabas was sent, but Barnabas realized he would uh, be uh, aided by Paul. And so he travels an additional 100 miles to Tarsus and gets Paul and brings him back and involves him in the ministry. And they have a year of deepening of their relationship 
in that time. The kind of deepening that happens when people are engaged in a great task together. It's the kind of camaraderie uh, that is depicted uh, of that happens with soldiers, and it's depicted in movies like Black Hawk Down and We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And their relationship only deepened in the course of the missionary journey. After all, Barnabas made room uh, for Paul. He ended up letting Paul take uh, the lead. No doubt these men had great respect for each other. For six years, they worked side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And so this conflict had to be very painful for both of them. But Paul felt it was a matter of principle uh, that John Mark, a deserter, should not come with them. We don't know why, whether it was that he felt that he'd not really owned his failure or demonstrated repentance, or whether he simply just thought John Mark didn't have the right stuff. He just wasn't cut out uh, for the demands of the mission. And so Paul opposes his older mentor and friend, and Barnabas, the encourager, no doubt believed that the grace of God could change anyone, could change John Mark. He was always seeing the potential in other uh, people, and undoubtedly he thought something like this. Why couldn't Paul understand? After all, Paul himself was a trophy of such grace. And so the conversations turned tense. Barnabas pressed his point, perhaps even pled, and Paul did not come around. The tension in their relationship was palpable. Now, this conflict is actually a common one in the church. The good of the whole work versus the good of an individual. The overall missionary effort or John Mark. And notice Luke doesn't take sides. He doesn't say this was right or this one was wrong. Did this conflict ruin these men's relationships? Well, the answer is no, but it did change them. Paul and Barnabas did not go out as a missionary team again. And there are a number of things to learn uh, from this. We see here that in even the best relationships will experience conflict. See, conflict's normal, it's inevitable, and it isn't necessarily the mark of a failure that something's gone wrong. Sometimes this is hard for people uh, uh, who get married. When they newly get married, they think, we're having a conflict. Something terrible has uh, happened here. But conflict is going uh, to happen in a marriage. It's going to happen in family life. It happens with the best of friends. And God uses conflict. Uh, to refine our character and to deepen our capacity uh, to love. We also see that not all conflict can be solved immediately or quickly, as much as we would probably like that to be the case. That doesn't mean there weren't failures on the part of either here. Uh, It it doesn't uh, mean Uh, that they handled this in every respect well. And it does show us that there are times when people who have deep respect for each other simply cannot reach agreement. Sometimes what that means is that we're just called to live with the tension. And other times it means that it's necessary to recognize we can't work together well any longer. 
But the aftermath of this story, which isn't told in uh, the account of Acts, is full of encouragement for us. Because conflict for Christians is not forever. God was uh, pleased to continue the advance of uh, the mission. Now, not one team, but two teams went out, uh, one under Barnabas and one under uh, Paul. And we see hints in Paul's letter that Paul's relationship with Barnabas was restored, that he viewed Barnabas very much as a colleague, as a fellow uh, worker. And we have these wonderful statements at the end of Colossians and Paul's second letter to Timothy, where Paul affirms the value of John Mark as a minister. He says in Timothy that he, well, get him because he is especially useful to me in ministry. And so Paul affirms him in the strongest of possible terms. And so we know that the joy was restored in these relationships. But it does not mean that we shouldn't try to resolve our conflicts. This passage doesn't excuse what happens here. We often fail, actually, at resolving our conflicts when we have a biblical duty to seek peace with each other and to work through our conflicts as best we can. And I'm sure at some level that you'll agree with me that when we find ourselves in a conflict, we don't want to do or say things that makes it hard to get back together again. So often, the words that are spoken in a time of tension, when emotions are running high, are just unforgettable words. They're so hard to, for people to put behind. And so we need especially to guard against this. I hope you hear God worked in this uh, for the good of his kingdom and ultimately to restore joy in these relationships. And that should be our hope in every relationship. Now, the main concern in this passage is the conflict uh, that takes place over the Gentiles. And there are really two issues at work here. One of them is theological. It is, what must I do to be saved and to belong to God's people? And the other is, is how do Jews and Gentiles do church together? Given the differences in their lifestyles because of their ethnicity and uh, cultures. The story opens up like this. Men from Judah, people who belong to the party of the Pharisees, go up to Antioch and say, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. You can't be in a right relationship with God. And Paul and Barnabas see this as a fundamental uh, uh, theological issue. It's a fundamental point of the gospel that we are made right with God only through the grace of Christ, which we receive by faith, not by anything uh, that we do. This sharp uh, dispute led the church to recognize that, well, Jerusalem, the apostles and elders there need to speak into this issue. And so they sent them off. And as Paul and Barnabas go, they relate uh, everywhere they go the amazing things that they'd seen God do. And as they're doing this in Jerusalem, someone stands up from the party of the Pharisees and says, they must be circumcised and they must be obedient to the entire law of Moses. The leaders 
the apostles and elders gather to discuss this, and undoubtedly this is a very uh, compressed account of what took place. And we don't know if it happened all in one day or whether it happened over a period of days. We don't know how many people uh, were in the gatherings. We simply don't know all of that. It's not important. But what Luke relates is this, that Peter reviews how God used him in the life of Cornelius, a Roman centurion who God sent to, uh, to Caesar town. In other words, a Gentile uh, to, in a Gentile city. And how God himself showed Peter that God himself made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And he warns uh, the church gathered, don't put God to the test, asking for something that God himself does not require. And then he affirms this theological truth, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing that makes us right with God. We add nothing uh, to that equation. And then the whole assembly is brought to silence as uh, Paul and Barnabas relate their experiences in their missionary uh, journey. And the thing that Luke wants you to see is that they spoke of the signs and wonders that God had done through them. In other words, God's fingerprint was all over uh, what had taken place in drawing the Gentiles to himself. And then uh, James rises, he summarizes the discussion, and then he speaks with biblical authority saying it was always God's plan uh, to bring salvation to the nations. It was always his intent uh, to gather people from every uh, nation uh, into his ancient people and to have one people. And then he offers his judgment. He says, here are four things that we need to ask the Gentiles to do. What are these four things? Well, these four things are a concession to the Jews. They are not a reimposition of the Old Testament law. They are all things that have to do with the lifestyle of idolatry that marked the world, the Hellenistic Roman world. Now, it's hard for us to understand this in some ways because we think of the practice of religion happening pretty narrowly. You know, we go to church and this is where we practice our religion. But in the ancient world, it was, idolatry was much more pervasive than simply going up to the temple and offering sacrifices. You see, economic life and civic life were interwoven with idolatry. And so you couldn't be a member of the electrical workers or a plumber or a carpenter or a silversmith without belonging to one of the guilds. And when the guilds got together, one of the things you did is you offered sacrifices to the guild gods. And if you gathered to celebrate the 4th of July or Memorial Day, well, there were sacrifices to the local pagan deities or perhaps even to the emperor. And so the intent of these four things is to communicate by the way the Gentiles live that they are not engaged in the bodily practices that are most closely associated with idol worship. The council uh, uh, comes together in uh, unanimity uh, and 
writes a letter. That letter is carried not only by Paul and Barnabas, uh, but others. And there's great joy in Antioch as a result. In fact, there's new ministry. There's a new level of trust between Jerusalem and Antioch. And so the men that were sent from Jerusalem have a ministry uh, there. The blessing of peace takes uh, place. Paul and Barnabas stay a while. The joy is restored to the church after all that tension and conflict. And Luke recounts this. I know it may seem a bit archaic to you. It's arcane and, well, irrelevant. But actually, what happens here is great significance. And it has great implications for the church, the global church, in the 21st century. Because if Jesus is Lord of all, then Christian mission to the whole world is the necessary response to this claim. The theological issue of how it is that we're made acceptable to God has been settled. It's been settled for us that it's only what Christ has done by grace alone, through Christ alone, by, through faith alone, we are saved. But the pastoral matter remains. This issues very much with the church, almost probably everywhere, but uh, we... I speak to you as an American, to the American church, because God has so ordered human history in our time that there's just a great churning of peoples uh, all over the globe that are just all mixed together in a way that perhaps to a degree that's never been uh, the case. And as God has uh, pulled people from many, many cultures and ethnicities uh, together, the gospel's going forth and reaching uh, people. And the pastoral challenge is this. How do these people with different, uh, from different cultures and ethnicities, different ways of doing things, actually do life together as a church? That's exactly the issue the early church uh, faced. The issue of inclusion amidst diversity arises fairly early in the book of Acts. It's kind of subtle at first. You, you might miss it, but in Acts 6, you'll recall that the Hellenistic uh, Jewish widows were being overlooked in the distribution of bread. And the church, with sensitivity, with cultural insight, appointed deacons. And among those deacons were some who had a Hellenistic background, Stephen being the most notable of them. In other words, they took one of their own to have an involvement in this ministry. So someone who understood their culture and its dynamics to be a part, to make sure that what was just and equitable was taking uh, place. It surfaces again, each step as the gospel moves forward, very pointedly as Peter goes to Cornelius' house, as God gives him a vision three times, and God makes it plain to him in the course of that uh, visit that, in fact, the Gentiles are not unclean in God's sight, and Jews should not regard them as such. God is no respecter of persons. And then this issue emerges as the gospel spreads to Antioch, but the dam breaks with the first missionary journey because really the church had been largely, the vast majority had been Jewish. 
And these issues did not come with the same force uh, that they were coming now. The theological issues spoken to at great length by Paul in his letter to Galatians. I preached on that a year ago, and you can go find that on Sermon Audio if you'd like. But the pastoral issue required great wisdom and sensitivity and sympathy. You see, what the council says is you Jewish Christians need to accept the Gentiles who are turning to God and not harass them about circumcision and not put on them unnecessary uh, conditions as a part of their, that they're saved or as a necessity, as a condition for their salvation. And you Gentiles, you need to show sensitivity uh, to Jewish cultural taboos. But you don't have to go beyond what's actually what God required of, well, aliens who were in Israel, who were Gentiles. That's uh, all of these issues that are required are mentioned in Leviticus 17 and 18. And the reason that they should do this is that the Jewish diaspora reaches into almost uh, every city in all the Roman Empire. And there are believers or will be believers and from the Jews. And so they didn't ask the Gentiles to adopt a, a Jewish cultural practices, the totality of what arose out of the law of Moses, and they didn't ask uh, the Jewish Christians to embrace the Hellenistic way of life. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you, because this issue from the Jewish-Gentile perspective is kind of settled. And actually, pretty much all of us here are Gentiles, so we don't feel this uh, tension. But I want to say to you, this tension dominates the life of the early church for decades. And we must not underestimate either the tension, nor that it could have gone wrong in so many ways. There was intense debate and rigorous investigation that was linked with the experience of the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying that the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius' household. And they experienced the Spirit just as we did on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. As well as when the decision is written, the church recognizes that the Spirit of God has brought about unity about how to do this. This inspired arrangement was worked out in the midst of tension, in godly leadership and spiritual discernment. Why is it so important in the middle of the book of Acts? Well, if the Spirit can't enable the church to work through its tensions, then what's the point? You see, the Spirit works both with and through the gifts of these godly leaders, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, and especially James, who model what it takes to weather the storms of controversy. These leaders, well, we witness them as they hold on both to the willingness to engage in fierce argument without ever giving up on the goal of unity, and they embody a peacefulness that's conciliatory without ever being weak. Those are hard things uh, to put together, but that is indeed what we uh, see here. And so what was hammered out was a communal compromise where they took each other's experiences and backgrounds seriously, even though almost certainly, well, emotions ran high in that meeting. 
And they weighed out what the scripture said very carefully. And they roll out a compromise on how they will move forward as the church. And even though it was undoubtedly difficult, they were very satisfied with the compromise because it expanded the boundaries of the church. Now, why is this so important for us? Well, it's important at two levels. One is it says something to us about evangelism. We have to lead with the gospel and not a call of people to conform uh, to our culture or uh, to have a moral reformation. Repentance is not adopting uh, uh, our clothing style, our speech patterns, or our taste in music. No, it's seeing the horror of one's sin and receiving the forgiving grace of Christ and embracing the Savior in faith for uh, taking your guilt and being liberated from its tyrannical control. And dealing with other Christians, especially new Christians, we need to be careful to distinguish what the gospel says, the word of God says about the lifestyle that fits faith. Because it's really very easy for us to insist on what feels comfortable to us, to insist that people adopt our uh, what is a comfortable cultural thing uh, for us. And it's so easy, and we've talked about this before I left, for Christians to pass judgment on each other in things where God has given us freedom, whether it's clothing or music or types of relaxation or the use of money. Each Christian has to give account to their master, the Lord God, and not to you or to me. Jesus Christ died to tear down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That was the deepest divide in the ancient world. But in doing that, he's torn down the divide between every culture, every ethnicity, every people group. This is the indicative of the gospel. This has been accomplished. Paul writes this in the plainest of words to us in Ephesians 3. And now that that wall is down, it's our responsibility to crawl over the rubble and go to people whose cultural background, whose ethnicity is different than our own. We should not passively expect that they somehow are going to make their way in here and become acquainted with us well enough to see the beauty and transformative power of the gospel. No, we have to go to the extra effort to go to them, to build uh, bridges uh, to them. Uh, God doesn't ask them to leave their culture behind in order to become Christ. And we cannot ask that of others as well. We have to climb over the wall. And what this passage shows us is, uh, and challenges us to think through, is what it looks like when Jesus Christ is pleased. When we climb over that wall and someone responds to the gospel who's very different than us, what does it look like for us to live life together, to do church together. To do that will require all that we see here, wisdom and sympathy and cultural awareness 
as well as sensitivity and the grace to reach compromises. That's what it takes. May God be pleased to grant us the courage and the faith to follow him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel advanced in the early church and it reached even us to this day. And we are amazed that you would include us in your work. And we pray, Father, as you brought uh, the nations together all over uh, our, our nation and here in the counties uh, we live in, especially uh, here in Laurel, that you'd help us, Lord, uh, to take those next steps uh, as a church, as individuals, uh, to go to those who are very different than ourselves, uh, to love them uh, well, to establish relationships with them, to become sensitive to their culture and understand them. And in your good time to be able to share the powerful gospel with them. May we uh, see you do a new work among us, we pray. And we pray, Father, for all the challenges that will bring. And we ask, Lord, that you'd encourage us by what we've seen this morning. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our Lord.